and welcome to this month's episode of Money Mountaineering with Peter Newworth, actuary and author. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs. So thrilled to be here. I am the producer and the founder of Incandescent Public Relations. We are here talking with amazing Richard Kahn, who is the author of The Earthbound Parent. He also has done amazing work in Russia. He is an international chess champ. And we are so excited to talk about the sharing economy tonight. So Pete, take it away. Well, thanks a lot, Hope. And Richard, I'm so thrilled that you, uh, you've agreed to come back. And I say come back because, as uh, many of you know who, who have been listening, uh, I had Richard and his uh, friend uh, and partner, Leland Faust, uh, on the show a, a while ago talking about their organization, which is Agents for Critical Thinking. Both Richard and Leland are champions of the proposition that uh, critical thinking is uh, in short supply these days and is um, something that we all should be encouraging. Now, at that podcast, we talked mostly about a lot about Leland's book, which was uh, about all the ways that uh, Wall Street deceives and plays games with customers and that prevents people from thinking critically and rationally about their money. Uh, but Richard's also written a book. Um, he's written a very good book called uh, The Earthbound Parent, where he focuses on helping kids uh, learn to think critically. And uh, at that last podcast, we talked about Richard's uh, recommendation that kids not have TV and learn to play chess, which I think are great, <laughs> great uh, bits of advice. Uh, but tonight we're going to go a little deeper into uh, Richard's uh, view of uh, critical thinking. And um, I guess I, I really love the way you, you put it, Richard, which is that, uh, you know, re reality is the road to happiness. And uh, reality is what we all should be trying to see and think about. And what I'd like to start off with is, as I read your book, the basic message there that I took from it was that there are a lot of things that get in the way of critical thinking, a lot of fears and desires and things. And I'd like to start there. And if you could share a little bit about what you see as the impediments to critical thinking and how we overcome them. Sure, I'd be glad to do that, Pete. Yeah, the Earthbound Parent is really focused on uh, the idea that all of us share you know, certain psychological traits, if you will, certain fears and desires. Uh, an example might be the, the fear of death, the desire for immortality, and that we find ways to deal with that. Um, and many people, as I write in the book, turn to some supernatural belief system for that. And I encourage people to go in a different direction, a uh, more reality-based direction, uh, to deal with those uh, fears and desires. In terms of what gets in the way, all of the, the ones that I describe in the book, and there may be 15 sort of different uh, sets that I think are relevant to most people. Uh, the one that I think is probably the most powerful is that which is based on uh, what I will call either, either the general fear or um, survival instinct, the, the desire to be safe, the desire for security. I think when that kicks in, you know, we all know about the fear flight reaction. Without any question, it's an impediment to people being able to think clearly. Some examples uh, you know, that uh, might bring it to life would be the simple one when you, you 
are watching your stocks in a stock market and something horrible goes wrong with one of your picks, uh, that can result in your, your brain almost going into a freeze mode, uh, some panic mode. Uh, same thing can happen if you're playing a chess game and you suddenly realize that you've made a horrible mistake and you're for a few moments praying and hoping that your opponent doesn't see it. There's, there is a, a visceral reaction in those instances. And those are the examples I might give of the sort of instantaneous, quick uh, sort of survival instinct that kicks in. And I can give you know many examples that are more serious in the world in terms of conflicts right. that take place because different countries, nations, groups are fearful or, or concerned about their survival and are willing to take steps to uh, to address that that are uh, that are extreme and sometimes are not reality based. Yeah, well, you know, I you know, I find that in my work talking with people about their money, that safety is always, you know, almost primal in its uh, in its motivation. But there's also I mean, you also talk about some other fears like fear of uncertainty. And of course, that's something that I I also have thought about quite a bit. But how um, how does fear of uncertainty get in the way of, of of thinking rationally? Well, one example might be uh, many people are worried in situations where they they're uncertain about what to do. They will tend to to rely on confirmation bias. They'll get in a mode where they they will not accept the idea that actually they don't have a clear answer or that the answer is uncertain and there are different probabilities involved in the answer. And being uncomfortable with that, they'll sort of, uh, they say, we'll run home to, to mama, you know, and, and take the view that, well, actually I do know the answer and it happens to comport with all the sets of beliefs that I've had most of my life and they'll fit the answer into that. So that that's a common way where I think people uh, end up letting, uh, uncertainty cloud their ability to uh, to stay within it, reality basically out of fear yeah, of I mean, that it, it really sort of gets back to that reality is the road to happiness because reality is not what you think will happen it's what might happen and all of the various possibilities of what might happen and how can you you know think about all of them at the same time yes i mean when i'm referring to reality i'm, I'm you know, I'm distinguishing it from belief systems and, for example, the supernatural, you know, the idea that uh, that everything's going to be okay because someone is watching over us rather than accepting the reality of a situation and trying to make the best of it yourself and taking responsibility for that, you know, your own accountability. Uh, you know, in my view, uh, relying on reality and, and your own capabilities is the path to happiness because that gives you the best chances of achieving your goals. But, you know, you, you also talk about, I mean, on the flip side, you also talk about um, the, the desires that actually also get in the way the things that we crave. I mean, I think you talk about the crave for craving control and craving belonging and various other things. I mean, it's really, it's really two sides of a, the same coin, maybe, I don't know. That, that is how I see it. In the Earthbound Parent, I do, you know, set up about 15 different sort of uh, pairs. Uh, and, I, and I gave the example of desire for immortality versus fear of death. And you gave another of uncertainty versus uh, that it is the fear of uncertainty and the desire uh, for certainty in, in those situations. I think that most of us, you know, if we're honest with ourselves, will see 
those pairings in our own lives and can then start to look at how do we deal with that. And I have friends who've taught me to sort of, for example, embrace uncertainty and sort of view that as actually a natural state. And, and you, you have to, you know, certainly as an investor or uh, just living your life, you, you have to recognize that much of life, of life is uncertain. I always tell people, you know, who talk about chess as a complicated game, you know, my response is no, it's actually a simple game compared to real life. In chess, everything is right in front of you on the board. You know, you need to have your pieces, you got 64 squares. Real life is far more uncertain. You know, I don't know what you're thinking. I barely know what I'm thinking. You have interactions with all sorts of people. It's an incredibly complex world. And so if, if you're not able to sort of live with uncertainty and, and just take it easy with that, you're going to have problems. Right. But and you see the key. I mean, now, of course, it's all great to, for us to talk about what gets in the way and what the how, what the problem is. But but the solutions and the solution that you've sort of come to is that you got to start early. You've got to start with the next generation is, or am I not quite getting it right? You're, you're, you're getting it right in, in part, Pete. You know, as I wrote at the beginning of the book, uh, I wrote over this book over 40 years. And during that time period, it, it morphed into a parenting slash philosophical book. And the, the reason for that was I didn't want to write a book that merely pointed out the, the problems that uh, we have in our society and in our uh, ethical structures by relying on sort of supernatural belief systems, which I view as extremely divisive, tribal, and harmful in many ways, and, and unnecessary to have an ethical society. But my feeling, Pete, was that the vast majority of people who would read that would have difficulty changing their own their own minds and, and would be set in their ways. So really, the, the way I sort of came at it was to encourage parents in particular who are reaching the decisions about how to raise their children to at least consider the possibility of doing it without passing along the same traditions that their parents passed along to them. And when I say traditions, I don't mean the foods and the culture. I mean, the ideas that, the, that they're related to a supernatural being, you know, in, in some way. That type of, uh, of structure I utilize because I, I do think that in order to extirpate the uh, uh, deeply ingrained infrastructure of the supernatural in our societies, which has been here for thousands of years, you need to take it step by step. And so that's why I wrote a book that really is, on the one hand, I think of value to anyone who wants to think about their place in the universe and, and how our society is structured, but is really geared towards th those decisions by parents. I see. Well, and um, are you seeing changes in this, in this, uh, of the, um, the word that you're spreading? I mean, do you see people starting to come around to, to thinking more, overcoming those supernatural superstitions and such? Well, you know, it, it's it's hard to obviously to measure this. Uh, I do find certainly the reviews of the book have been spectacular. I think people, wherever they're coming from in terms of their their set views, find I think the arguments rather persuasive and strong. And I and I did try to write it in a in a manner that's very diplomatic. I'm certainly not attacking people who have different perspectives on this, uh, but I am laying out the case for having an ethical structure and a society that's far less based on supernatural beliefs. I, I do get a lot of positive feedback from people, but the reason it's hard to answer your question is 
you know, it, it's certainly possible that those who disagree are just not communicating with me. Uh, in this day and age, there are a lot of different, you know, different views out there. So it's not easy to measure. Plus, there's already, you know, I think a strong undercurrent, certainly in a purportedly secular country of our own, like our, uh, the United States, of people who view the world the way I do and are not particularly um, tied to a supernatural belief structure and are not particularly tribal. Right. Uh, and so those folks, I, I think, find it useful to, re, you know, to have the book available to uh, sort of lay out the argument in a way that they can, you know, understand, utilize with their family and friends and feel comfortable with it. Because many people, Pete, you know, have difficulty with the idea of, you know, the how an ethical foundation can can exist without a supernatural being laying down, you know, several commandments, you know, and uh, although I find that a very simple thing to answer for many people, that's a stumbling block. Right. But you also, you also are a very strong advocate of, of uh, chess uh, as a, as a metaphor and as a, as a method for teaching critical thinking as well. And I, you know, I'm, I know that they, they've had many, many chess in schools programs and so forth. Well, I guess I'd love to hear you talk more about how chess can foster critical thinking and how it can combat some of these other magical and other supernatural thinking. You know, there's there's a lot in life that promotes critical thinking. Chess is among those. Uh, Obviously, I have encouraged my children and taught them music and all sorts of different parts of life. And you're right, I have discouraged passive activities like television, although you know, we have exposed them to, uh, you know, my wife and I to uh, expose them to different things on the internet that we, you know, want them to see, but we just don't open up, you know, the entire world to them for, uh, uh, to have a passive existence watching television. The reason I, I like chess as an example for parents to teach children is because kids seem to love it so much. Uh, and because it does give them so many different skill sets. You know, the obvious ones at the early ages is it gives them a a spatial sense and being able to manipulate pieces around a board gives them the ability to calculate, to uh, utilize their memory to certain degrees, to make decisions on their own. And I'm a big fan of accountability. I love the fact that when a child is playing chess, they're making the decisions, you know, and and they have to live with the the outcome of those games. Uh, And then you, as I note in the book, one of the other things I love about the game is it teaches humility. Because anybody who's played chess has learned that they are fallible. <laughs> we are all really fallible. And uh, I think that's a nice counterpoint to the arrogance that uh, that you can get from belief in a supernatural being that promotes the idea of how special we are as human beings. I think it's much better to come at life with a much more humble attitude, you know, work to learn, work to develop our critical uh, you know, thinking skills. And, and also, if you play chess against computers and such things, you you quickly see, you know, just how difficult it is uh, to calculate, to remember things. And uh, it puts you in a mindset where uh, you, you learn to to think a little less of yourself and to, uh, uh, you know, to be amazed to the extent that you and others can do anything particularly well. Again, it's it's a much more, much more of a philosophy based on humility than, and I think chess brings that out. Well, you know, since you bring up humility in chess, I mean, I, I have to ask you, because you you have sort of had a lot of um, relationships with uh, some of the very, very top best players in the world. And at least from the outside, it looks like some of them are not so not so humble. And um, 
how does the humility that kind of, you know, gets trained into you playing chess translate to some of these really good chess players who feel like they're the smartest people in the world? You know, I, I have to say that in my, in my experience, I, I've, I've known one or two who, who sort of have the attitude you describe. And those are people that I would view as rather insecure. You know, one didn't have a father figure growing up. He became world champion. And, you know, he, he does have an attitude. And having said all that, I won't associate a name with it. Uh, but I would say the vast, vast majority of chess players, including the top chess players in the world, if you listen to their podcasts, you know, when they're going through games, Mm-hmm. They will speak about it more the way I do, you know. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, certainly Magnus Carlsen is quite humble. He he does view himself as the best chess player in the world. You know, I've gotten to know Magnus through the years, but he's also a very humble person. Uh, Hikaru Nakamura, likewise, you know, sees himself as a great chess player, but he'll talk about the mistakes he made, how stupid he is in this situation. So I think most of them, you know, recognize also that they're. They're uh, they're practicing their craft in a very narrow framework. So I, I don't I don't really feel that arrogance goes with chess. I think from the outside it can look that way because many people make the assumption that strong you know super strong chess players uh, and I do not count myself among those. That's your humility coming <laughs> because you you are you are far from. <laughs> I befriended many of the top players in part because they know they can beat me so easily. Uh, I think those pl- players really do show a great sense of humility in terms of other areas of life, with the ex- notable exception of one or two uh, who do gain a lot of publicity on occasion, who come across uh, as not willing to listen and is very uh, opinionated. I guess I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a little colored by growing up uh, with watching Bobby Fischer. And um, uh, you can describe Bobby Fischer in a lot of ways, but humble is not is not the word that comes to my mind when I when I think about Bobby Fischer. I would agree. I didn't know him. I met I met his wife years after he passed away. I, I didn't meet Fischer, and uh, but from what I've seen, he certainly does not embody the characteristics that I'm describing at all. No, but he had his own issues, and he, there are and there are other examples in the chess world of people who had psychological problems. There's no question about that. And I'm not encouraging parents to you know to try to train their children to become professional chess players. I'm not. I'm viewing it as as part of a well-rounded education, sure. uh, as one tool they can use in that, and again, it also to to instill self-confidence in children. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very nice tool for that. Right, but I'm, I don't. I guess it wasn't the chess that brought you there, but you spent a lot of time in Russia with with some really great chess players, and but what you were doing in Russia was to help them reform the economy, as I understand it, and that was back in the back in the 90s. And uh, since we are, since most of my my podcasts are about navigating through the world of money, maybe we can talk a little bit about your experiences in Russia and how trying to make that system a little bit more rational and uh, more open to critical and rational thinking, where you met some success and where you met some failure and what kind of lessons we can draw for navigating through financial troubles here? Sure. Uh, you know, first by background, you know, I was over there uh, as, as, a, as a, one of the equity partners in a big U.S. law firm, uh, Latham and Watkins at the time. And I ended up in a position where I was heading the Bar Association there on the ground and also 
had developed a close friendship with Yeltsin's uh, chief of staff, a guy named Gennady uh, Berbalis, who passed away last year, but he had remained a close friend most of my life. Uh, and so, yes, I had an opportunity to be part of and to some degree lead a lot of the efforts to create the legal structure that was necessary to transition from the Soviet Union to the new country called the Russian Federation. And at the time, the aspiration of the leaders of that country was, to, uh, you know, were to, you know, form a free market democratic society. And that's why at the time they were closely allied with the U.S. And you know, a lot of our work uh, was done in coordination with uh, support from the U.S. Uh, at that time. You know, in answer to your question, I, you know, I've always found the Russians to be, you know, quite rational uh, and, uh, and most of them embracing <clears throat> critical thinking. There is a tradition there of authoritarianism, mm -hmm. which is tied to some degree with sort of religious authoritarianism, and that has come back, particularly in the Putin years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a, an undercurrent against critical thinking. But generally speaking, you know, their economy had been set up in a way that that made sense to them. They were they were and are an oil and gas state largely and some other raw materials. And in those environments, it's, it's very easy uh, to create an authoritarian structure. Uh, because you don't require the consent and cooperation of the vast majority of the population to pay taxes and to take actions together to, to have a full society. So the structure of their society back in the 90s and, and certainly today as well is really very different than what we in the West are accustomed to simply because of that massive difference in terms of how the economy is structured. So they really you know don't don't need to have all of the the rules, regulations, and structures that we have in place in the United States to function at the level that their autocracy currently functions. So I, I just wanted to give a little bit of background on that right. before we get into specific, you know, but I'm happy to answer more specific. Well, no, we, we, I mean, where I was going with that is, um, I mean, I, again, this is all from the outside, but it appeared that people were subject to fears and and desires and and greed and 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 perhaps as you point out and and actually you mentioned in the book this desire for guidance and somebody to tell you what to do and all those things i would think prevented people from navigating their economically in a uh in a rational or a critical you know using critical thinking to navigate their financial lives. And that's that's sort of where I was going. Right. Yes. I mean, I, I can pick up on that. Certainly, you know, one, there were very there were and are very deeply entrenched relationships in, in Russia, uh, meaning uh, relationships that would preclude their desire to change how their society and their economy is structured. You know, people were, were and are happy having control over, say, an oil company or an oil and gas company. Uh, and they don't want to change that. In addition, the society overall, and I and I think you, you hit this point and you're absolutely right with it, Pete, uh, the society overall is far more comfortable with the idea of being told what to do than we are in the West, you know, and certainly in the United States. Most of us in the United States bristle at the idea of anybody telling us what to do, or at least, you know, in certain instances, we may not mind stopping at a red light, but if someone tells us that it would save lives to get a vaccine, will you know some people will just have an absolute you know reaction to that and say never will i be told or in any way pressured to do anything in russia it's it's really quite different it's a society that 
you know, has had czars in the past, uh, had a very brief flirtation with democratic structures during the Yeltsin years. Uh, but the average Russian, and I met, you know, again, hundreds, thousands, whatever, during my many years living over there, really was more comfortable with having a life that was almost Soviet in structure with, with a guaranteed job, guaranteed benefits, you know, no real entrepreneurship. Once they get into sort of that that mental state, it, it, it I think is difficult for them to come out of that. And so, you know, I can certainly say that that Berbalis, I, you know, Yeltsin, all the reformers certainly came up against resistance, not just the the type that was, you know, on exhibit when we had the, you know, the tanks, you know, shelling the White House because the sort of the Soviet regime was trying to stay in power when Khazbalatov and Rutskoy were, were fighting back, um, but also resistance from a societal perspective, just in terms of having any change at all. And, uh, you know, keep in mind that, you know, democracy to many people can look and, and free markets can look like chaos. I think Lincoln spoke about that as one of the reasons why he wanted, you know, to succeed and not, you know, not see the country fall apart. He didn't want that experiment, both in self-governance and in the structures we were utilizing to fail. And and look, autocracies even today like to portray, you know, our structure is as largely chaotic. So that undercurrent was certainly there you know, during the years that I've been there, both in the 90s and the 2000s, and in the many trips I've taken since then, there is a fundamental just distrust, if you will, of the invisible hand, and and more comfort with the idea that someone ought to be in charge, a strong man. And obviously, there are people in this country, not as, you know, not as many, it's not as prevalent, but certainly lots of people who are very comfortable with the idea of a strong man. And often that is tied as well to sort of a comfort with religious authoritarianism, those two things, you know, often are sort of married together and uh, give people a sense of structure and order in their minds. Yeah. When we talked a while ago, we, you were actually more hopeful about things in America because, you know, we weren't starting from scratch trying to build something. But it does feel like things are chaotic. I mean, again, this is this is in my world of helping people navigate through the world of money. People are feeling like everything's chaotic and they're and uncertain and they don't know what's going to happen. And they're looking for authority. They're looking for, for guidance. And I think what you're saying is it's better not to have that, that overarching authority and better to find the way to overcome those fears of chaos, fears of uncertainty, fears of losing it all and um, move forward in a rational way. Critical, critical. I, I am saying that. I, I often, like as do others, you know, make the, the silly joke that the U.S. Is, has the worst economic structure of any country in the world, except all the others. And the same thing for legal system and everything else. I, I think we have to keep our expectations within reason. You know, I, I don't, in the philosophy that I espouse, I don't think everything is supposed to be perfect. I don't think everything is supposed to be certain. I think uncertainty and difficulty is part of, of life. We have a large country uh, here, what is it, 330 million people. We have a lot of diverse views. You know, that's a strength. We have people from all over the world. So as we're doing international trade, we have a huge advantage because we have, you know, people who speak the languages, who can interact. And we have freedoms in our country in terms of how our economy is structured and our laws are structured that allow people to be entrepreneurial and to feel they can create something new, build something and not have it stolen. For those you know on you know who are listening or watching 
who favor sort of a more autocratic structure, you know, more of a strongman structure. I guess all I would say is, you know, I've lived under that structure for a period, you know, during the years when I was over in Russia under under Putin. I can tell you, you won't like it. If you want to just have news that is curated to support the view of the party that happens to be in power, uh, you know, try living in an, in an autocratic regime. You know, try living in a regime where if you if you build a business, the main thing you're worried about is how to keep it from being taken by people who have ties to the to the powerful folks. What 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 happens in the, in those societies, the autocratic societies, is you end up getting the nine circles of hell, sort of you know sort of you know that that concept that Dante wrote about. Everybody wants to get closer and closer to the the power center. And I say everybody, meaning those that are willing to play the game and and sacrifice their ethics in order to you know make their way. They want to have that relationship with the power. So you get essentially a medieval structure. And that, you know, to use the example of Russia, is really what they have there. And I feel sorry, in a sense, because I think the country would be far more successful if it were able to make the transition away from that. Uh, but I can tell you that the dynamic of a society where uh, where you must rely on those relationships in order to be successful is a horrific state. And it you very quickly get into a mode that is really truly medieval, where law doesn't really matter because the judges and others have to curry favor with those in power. And you're really totally relying on, if you will, the, the benevolence of the dictator and those around him to uh, take proper action. And that, of course, brings up, you know, Machiavelli, right? I mean, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, I saw that in Russia. That is what happens there. And it is not, it is not by nature, I want to be super clear about this. It's not because Russians are any different than we are. It, it is because their system, their structure is very different. Their economy, as I described, is different. Their, their position is different. And I can tell you this, if we ever make the mistake of getting in a, a posture where we have a real strong man in power and those around him effectively utilizing the tools to accomplish that, uh, we, would, we would be in a world of hurt. And I hope people think carefully about it when they you know, consider whether they want the, the mess of a free market, you know, free system and, and having you know, uh, uh, free and open elections or, or whether they want to go down a road that uh, is more tribal. Well, you know, I hear you, and I, I actually agree with you. The the challenge in people who I'm, I I advise or advise to advise um, is is that they're on their own, and they don't they're not equipped to know all of the answers, and so they have to get advice. People need to get advice. Right. They need to look to experts, and who's going to make sure that the experts? are telling them the truth. I mean, how, I guess that's where critical thinking comes in is, is that you got to be very, very clear about, is this person giving you good advice when they say buy this variable annuity when, you know, maybe they have a financial interest in that, you know, that's a- Well, yeah, taking advice is, is important, but obviously relying on oneself is what we have to do in life. And so that, that's hard. You know, employing critical thinking is a lot of work, right? You have to sometimes read things, think about them, ask tough questions. Uh, it's part of what I wrote about in the book. And I, by the way, I emphasize 
all the revenue from my book, all my royalties go to an unaffiliated charity. I wrote it to be helpful. I hope people will take a look at it because I, I think it does help people understand the value of thinking for yourself. Right. Uh, so yes, hire experts like yourself and others who listen, I'm sure do that for a living. And that's very important. But at the same time, uh, you, you have to cross check it. And one good way to know if you can rely on people or whether it's a news outlet or other things is look at your history in terms of you know having gotten information from them and whether the information you received ended up being borne out as, as from your perspective, truthful. So if you're getting information from an advisor and, you know, you learn two or three times that they were wrong, well, you know, you take that into account next time you get their advice. But I, I, I just don't think there's an easy solution in terms of embracing reality other than doing the hard work, mm -hmm. taking responsibility for yourself, not blaming other people, not blaming the other group, you know for being bad or, or behind your problems. Um, you know, our country will do far better as we take more responsibility for ourselves and, and keep working and keep coming up with new ideas for businesses and taking the initiative and uh, and being responsible for ourselves and not well, blaming others. You know, then that's exactly what I've been preaching, that the only expert in your financial situation is you. And I think that's a that's a great way for us to, because to, we need to wrap up here. And I think this is a great way to end it up, which is that, Critical thinking is necessary if you're going to rely on yourself. And critical thinking is hard, but it's worth it. I think that I think that's true. I'm sad we didn't get into our chess stories, and I can give you colorful anecdotes about some of the players. But yes, I uh, I agree. I I think that uh, as I've said, I think one of the points the Earthbound Parent makes is that one of the uh, most important things one can do to embrace critical thinking is to utilize it in all aspects of life. So don't, for example, on the most important issues in life, such as our place in the universe and how we think of ourselves as uh, in our relationship to our fellow man, you know, don't just close your eyes and say, I'm going to take it on faith that it's this or that. Use your critical thinking skills. It's a great place to hone them. And I think you'll find your relationships with other people improve as you look at all of us as in this together. Great. Well, Richard, this has been fantastic. The book is The Earthbound Parent, and it's a it's a really great book. I really I've got mine is uh, fully notated all the way through, and there's lots and lots of insights and lots of uh, very very critical thinking and critical um, critical analysis of uh, what you need to do to um, make your way. So thanks so much, Richard, and uh, hope to hope to see you again real soon. Pete, it's always a pleasure. Thank you both so very much. This was so fascinating. What's also fascinating to me is I tonight am in Venice, Italy with my son. Pete is in Northern California. Richard is in Connecticut slash New York. And how we all work together to bring our viewpoints. And just it's just a beautiful thing to have these conversations about thinking critically and using your uh, your wisdom, your internal and external wisdom. So thank you, Richard. Thank you, Pete. I'm sorry that my picture is not live, but it's about midnight here and the lighting is bad in this hotel room. So <laughs> I thank you both. And I thank our audience for listening to Money Mountain Earring with Peter Newworth, actuary and author. And we will bring you another episode next month. So stay tuned for more. Thank you all. <laughs>